I've, I've put in a lot of effort and over the years to write in a way that is accessible and not so jargony. Because, and that's in a, in a big way, that's undoing and unlearning a lot of things that are beaten into us in graduate school, right? Where to be Definitely. esoteric, to have more jargon, to be more theoretical, is to be is to be closer and closer to an academic ideal. And the more practice space you are, the more accessible you are, the the less academic you're seen, right? Your 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 value is less on the academic hierarchy. Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today on the podcast, we are speaking with Jeremy Caradana. Jeremy holds a PhD in the history of scientific, environmental, and political thought and teaches environmental studies and human dimensions of climate change at the University of Victoria in Canada. He is also the author of Sustainability, a History, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. In this podcast, we discuss why Jeremy left his tenured academic position, his thoughts on shifting your career towards practical work linked to social and environmental change. We also discuss his teaching philosophy and get into some details about his book on the history of sustainability. I really enjoyed this podcast with Jeremy and I learned a lot. So please welcome Jeremy Caradano. Jeremy, thanks a lot for taking the time to come on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you've written this uh, interesting book. I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, Sustainability, a History from Oxford University Press, published in 2014, I believe was the first edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know you also have a more diverse background than that. I was looking at your website earlier and it said on your website that you have three kind of focal areas of things that you, you think about. I'm not sure if you consider yourself all the way into academia, as you mentioned before we got started. But one of those focuses is the early modern history, early modern European history with a focus on cultural, scientific and environmental history of Enlightenment France. Um, you also have a book on that from 2012 with Cornell University Press. And the second is a history and practice of sustainability. And the third is food systems and organic food industry. But it would be super interesting to hear how you kind of describe yourself at the moment, what you work on. Yes, it, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out how to describe it to others as well. Uh, I mean, uh, I spent a lot of my life reading uh, Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you've ever read the mythologist Joseph Campbell, but he always said that you should follow your bliss in life, and that's what I've done. I've followed my bliss, often to the detriment of my own career advancement, but all, but, uh, but still to my own personal satisfaction and stimulation. So, I mean, my story is is a somewhat unusual one. Maybe I should talk about myself a bit before divi- diving into this book, because I think it probably helps to set the context for what I'm writing about. Yeah, please. I I had a fairly conventional background in terms of academia. I went to I first started out at the University of Southern California, and then I transferred back to my hometown of Seattle, of Seattle, Washington, and went to the University of Washington, and then went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins and just powered right on through. I ended up doing my master's and my PhD, both of them total took me four and a half years, which is incredibly fast and almost unheard of to finish all of that in less than five years. And I was just on like a death march, an academic death march. And I think it was partly because of my upbringing. I grew up not in an elite family. I mean, I was I was probably the first person in my family to ever go to graduate school. I wasn't the first person to go to university, but I was the first one to go to graduate school. And I really saw an academic career as a way out of my lower middle class upbringing. And I've always just been particularly focused and driven to succeed in that way. And so I ended up getting, very fortunately, was offered a job by a university in Canada before I even finished writing my dissertation. So I had to very quickly finish my dissertation, got this job, 
was on the tenure track, got tenure, and everything was was chugging along as it should for someone who really lucked out in academia. <clears throat> but what happened to me was that my my career was in a sense derailed by the growing realization that we're dealing with an immense ecological crisis. And I got to a point where <clears throat> I felt that it was intellectually irresponsible of me to continue on the path that I was on. Even though I had this well-paying job with benefits, with a pension, with cultural recognition and all the things that come along with being an academic, but I just felt like I could not continue on that path. It would be inauthentic to myself. Um, I think other people like like myself have had this sort of crise, crise de conscience that has been triggered by climate change. I mean, once I began, I mean, I was studying the history of, I was studying environmental history, I was studying the history of science, but I wasn't really focusing on climate change at that point. But when I began to understand the the depth and severity of the crisis that we're facing, it just felt irresponsible for, for me, just, just this is my own personal decision, to be, first of all, flying around the world all the time, going to academic conferences, in which I felt virtually nothing was accomplished, and <clears throat> diving into the minutia of political, cultural, and scientific history in the 17th and 18th centuries. Not to say that those things aren't enormously important. I'm still a defender of history. I still, no matter what I do in my life, I think of myself as an historian. But, I mean, have you never gone to a conference before and you thought, what is the, what is the carbon footprint of this event? Absolutely. Why did we all yeah. see to read papers that could have just been written, we could have just read them at home? Right. I mean, have you ever had that kind of feeling? Yeah, definitely. One thing, I mean, I wonder, because I think a lot of academics, at least that I've, I've talked with over the last couple of years, kind of have that same realization that you had. What, what was the thing? Was there a particular moment where you, you thought, okay, no, I really have to change? Or was it just a series of thinking over time, which really changed your mind to get out of out of that mode? I think it was a bit of both. But I think having having my first child was the turning point. I think that that, that recognition that, I mean, my first daughter was born in 2009. Right? You know, so that and I remember thinking, in fact, I think it was my father-in-law who said, if all goes well, your daughter, my, da my daughter Stella, his granddaughter, he said, if all goes well, my granddaughter will live to see the year 2100. She'd be 91 years old. All she has to do is live to be 91 and she'll see the year, she'll see the, the 22nd century. And that just bowled me over. It was like being hit by a ton of bricks. Because here you are thinking, well, what's the world going to look like in 2050? What's the world going to look like in 2075? Oh, my daughter will be in her forties at that point. Right. I don't. I just want to bequeath to my to my progeny an uninhabitable planet. And I also feel like there is a moral imperative that comes with being, if you will, the intellectual one percent. We are the intellectual one percent. We're not the social one percent. We're not the economic one percent. We're the intellectual one percent. We're incredibly well educated. Some might say overeducated. And you know, here here's the influence of the Enlightenment on me. I mean, I can also remember reading a, a passage by Voltaire that said to the effect, I can't remember the exact quote, but to the effect of, every man is guilty of the good that he does not do. There, if you realize that there is a problem facing society, and Rousseau th realized that there were problems that face society, Voltaire realized that there were problems that face society, there, that comes with it a moral imperative to act. Right. And those two, both Rousseau and Voltaire, spent their lives working on social justice. They weren't really environmental thinkers, because this is the 18th century we're talking about, and they had other axes to grind, but I'm in the same boat. I, I, made, I made a realization about 
anthropogenic climate change. And for me, that brought with it a moral imperative to act. And so everything I've done in my life really since that realization has been to meet that end. And over time, that has become less academic. But just circling back to this book, so just to talk about the genesis of this book, I started teaching courses on sustainability. And the university I was at at the time, the University of Alberta, had a very active Office of Sustainability. I was involved in putting that together. I, I wanted to teach a course on the history of sustainability, and so I went looking for books, and I couldn't really find one to use in my own course. <clears throat> and so partly this was just an attempt to write a book that I wanted to use in my own courses, like any self-serving academic. But the, at the same time, I wanted to write something that wasn't just applicable to a couple of hundred undergraduates or a couple of hundred academics, because I... I, I also had the realization in graduate school, I, I worked with um, an historian named David Bell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's now, he was at Johns Hopkins, he's now at Princeton. And he spent a lot of his life writing for the, the New Republic and New York Times Review of Books and outlets like that. He's, he's much more than an academic, he's also a journalist. And uh, it's very much his influence rubbing off on me because he he was able to reach a much wider audience by taking a step back from purely academic writing. And he was still looking to reach a pretty intellectual audience, but he has tens of thousands of readers rather than a few hundred readers. And he's had an impact on how people think about, for instance, French culture. So I was also very much influenced by him. And I think he recognized in me a certain talent for writing, for accessible writing that a lot of academics don't have. I'm still I'm still working on that, but I've, I've put in a lot of effort and over the years to write in a way that is accessible and not so jargony. Right. Because, and that's in a, in a big way, that's undoing and unlearning a lot of things that are beaten into us in graduate school, right? Right. Where to be Definitely. esoteric, to have more jargon, to be more theoretical <clears throat> is to be, is to be closer and closer to an academic ideal. And the more practice based you are, the more accessible you are, the, the less academic you're seen, right? Your, your, your value is less on the academic hierarchy. Well, it's I interesting. Think, it's almost like you're being this rigorous, right, if you don't include that kind of stylized writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and I can remember in graduate school, the term popular history for us was like the ultimate insult. <laughs> we, we always talk about pop, popular history with disdain. And yet, how, how is the majority of the public engaging with history is through popular history. I mean, most of the, most of the public is not reading academic history. They're reading works on the Civil War and Napoleon and whatever they're reading on. So anyway, going back to this book, I then reached out to Oxford, and Oxford really liked the idea of this being a more accessible work, and they actually gave me a pretty decent advance on the book and wanted to make some money on it and see it more of a tra as a trade book and not just something that's going to be read by two or 3,000 readers. So I tried to write something that was, in fact, very accessible. <clears throat> but just taking another step back and talking more about methods... Uh, I, I think it's important to understand that from an historical point of view, I subscribe to a certain school of thought <clears throat> that differs from other schools of thought. I mean, I'm broadly an historicist. I'm trained in, in cultural history and cultural studies. And so the reason I wanted to write a book on the history of sustainability was to give credibility to a movement that I'm involved with, I'm involved with in the present day. 
<clears throat> and I, I can't honestly, I can't remember if I say this in the book or not, but I've said it before, speaking to audiences, that our interest in history is dictated by our current cultural preoccupations. I think a, a lot of people don't understand that. The things that we choose to write about, write about in terms of history are a reflection of our current day values. So it's no coincidence that labor history began to be written when the labor movement kicked up steam in the late 19th century into the 20th century. It's no coincidence that women who are involved in the, in the women's movement and in women's rights began to write women's history. And it's no coincidence that the formation of the environmental movement began to write environmental history. I mean, history is, is always in some sense an appendage, a rhetorical appendage to whatever it is that you are working on in the present day. I, to write history is always to be engaged in some kind of a political act, right? I mean, you, you, go, you could go even further and talk about um, same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships. I mean, there's a huge interest in, in, um, in that subject as an historical field, right, which was not just nobody was really interested in, in queer studies, for instance, 50 years ago. And it's not like those archives, those resources were suddenly discovered in someone's attic. They've just been sitting in archives. But because we weren't preoccupied with it in the, in the present day, we weren't preoccupied with it as an historical subject. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, totally. I'm thinking, for instance, the work recently of Alan Tolchin, who has written on uh, th this, this question of what's called enfermement, in brotherment in 13th and 14th century France, he essentially discovered that there was a form of same-sex union between male monks in medieval France, where they could essentially form a household, pool their resources. No one really knows what they were doing in the bedroom, but they essentially functioned as a couple, um, as a same-sex couple. Fascinating material. Is that material like locked away in some dusty attic? No, it was just sitting there. It just it just wasn't of an it wasn't of a no one was interested in the subject. Right? And therefore, they didn't go looking for historical antecedents. Does that make sense? So it's the same thing for me. It's, it's like the, the sources I'm looking at, for the most part, on the history of sustainability are out there. They've been used in different ways. Some of them have, have been underutilized. But I went back and looked at them because I want to understand where my movement comes from. And I also think to give your movement roots is to give it a certain credibility, is to give it a certain legitimacy. It's to say, look, people like myself have not been... They're, they're, I'm not the only one who's been interested in living within my ecological limits. There's been a number of thinkers and schools of thought going back at least 300 years that have been interested in this subject. We need to connect all this together. So that's what historicism is. Historicism is a way of treating um, as an historical development. I'm not particularly interested in using history as some kind of a moral theater from which I can extract lessons. You know, I mean, my so my approach differs very much from the work, say, of, of Jared Diamond right. or Joseph or Joseph Tainter, two people that I have respect for, but we just have very different methods. I mean, so for me, it's not about going back to the 18th century and saying, mm, "Let's see what they did right," or "Let's see what they they did wrong," and extract some simplified lesson from it and apply it to the 21st century. You know, part of my assumption is that they're the contexts are so radically different you can't really simplistically extract lessons from the past. So that's just not my method. My method is about saying, where did sustainability come from? Where did this, I, where did this concept come from? 
And it turns out it has this long history that goes back to the 18th century. Yeah, right. Well, I can see where you get that logic from where you think, you know, as the advent of kind of sustainability has come into the present moment, that only then do we look back on the past. And one of the things that I was interesting, which I thought was, was, was an interesting reflection at the beginning of your book was, you know, why start at the 1700s? Well, you know, why start in this kind of post-Enlightenment European setting um, instead of looking back at some of the more sustainable cultures over time? And I, th and I thought one of the reflections there, which was interesting, was that you only need a sustainability movement in an unsustainable society. And is that somehow the starting place for the book? Yes, it is. And I'll, I'm also writing this book with the realization that Jared Diamond and Joseph Tainter and others have done really good work on indigenous cultures and on non-Western cultures to understand what they were doing well and, and issues that they had with living unsustainably. So, you know, I, I've just here uh, criticized their methodological approach, but I, I do think it takes, all, it takes all kinds. And there are different valid approaches to understanding anthropology and history. <clears throat> um, but if you, think, if you take a look at, at the work of, of, for instance, Jared Diamond, if you think about guns, germs, and steel, and, and probably more appropriately, collapse. I don't know if you want to call it structuralism or whatever you want to call it, but he's particularly interested in extrapolating lessons from different world cultures and, and, and cobbling it together into a grand theory that can be applied to different locations. That's, for me, much more what social science is involved in. It always feels foreign to me as someone who comes from the humanities, because I, I just want to pick that apart and say, well, aren't the Anasazi and, and, the, and the, uh, the Vikings of Greenland and the Maya, aren't these vastly different societies? How can we, is there really a grand theory that ties them all together? And, you know, since that book has come out, he's, he's you know, a lot of criticism has been leveled against him for, for making things fit into his model. Um, but anyway, the, the point being is that <clears throat> I didn't want to write a history that, I didn't want to write a book that was about the inherent sustainability of indigenous cultures, even though I believe that that is the case, and I've studied that subject much more extensively since I wrote this book. My interest was in historicizing the sustainability movement, mm -hmm. and I see the roots of the sustainability movement in early modern Europe, and as, as you just noted, and as I noted in the book, it is a reaction against realization that the the path of industrialized society was unsustainable. You right. know, I live here in British Columbia in uh, amongst the Coast Salish, that's the indigenous people here, and I have a lot of contact with them <clears throat> and I've I've gained a real appreciation for their their systems because unlike many of the people in <clears throat> pre-contact North America, the Salish were agriculturalists or they engaged in what I would call ecosystem cultivation. That is to say they actually grew food. Uh, in a way that could perhaps be amenable to a definition, a westernized definition of agriculture. They were harvesting a bulb called camas that grew around Gary Oak trees. And they, through controlled burns and, and other forms of cultivation, they grew their own food. <clears throat> anyway, the point being is that they did that for thousands of years. That's a sustainable culture. Is there, is there lessons to be learned there? Absolutely. But that's not, they didn't play any direct role in the sustainability movement that took shape in the 1980s, in the 1990s. That comes out of the Western world. And it's the Western world holding a mirror up against itself. 
So for me, they're just two different stories. But it's not to say that there isn't a lot to be learned from sustainable indigenous cultures. That's just not the book that I was writing. Right. Yeah. So when I think about the, the structure of the introduction of the book, where, where do you think in Europe? I and mean, what are those actual events or the key thinkers who are, who are kind of giving a push to this movement or this way of thinking? Well, one of the key thinkers that I've come across is Hans Karl von Karlowitz, who was uh, who coined the term Nachhaltigkeit in German, which translates pretty well into sustainability. And uh, as I write in the book, he's he's in charge of the mining industry in Saxony. And Saxony was a mining powerhouse in the early 18th century. <clears throat> Saxony being a state, constituent state in the Holy Roman Empire. And Karlowitz was was a part of the social elite. He was part of the aristocracy. And <clears throat> he began to realize that there was an unsustainable use of woodland in in central and eastern Germany, or what we might call Germany today, the empire. And so he ended up writing this forestry treatise, <clears throat> even though he was technically involved in mining. And that's because mining was heavily reliant upon wood. And he's building upon <clears throat> the work of some other uh, thinkers and writers who are working on on forestry in the late 17th and early century, early 18th century, including John Evelyn and Colbert in uh, in France. <clears throat> so, what I found in my own research is that the origin of the sustainability movement is very much related to a realization that woodland is declining in the 18th century, by the early 18th century, and that that's having a multifaceted complex impact on society and economy. So from the point of view of Karlovitz, the cost of wood was going up and it was just becoming scarce. And that was having an impact on mining because, uh, you know, the charcoal was being used in uh, forges, for instance, to smelt and to refine various metals and ores. And also you needed timber to hold up mine shafts and that sort of thing. And so he realized that it was crucial for the continuation of the industries that he was overseeing. So he became interested in forestry. So he began studying Roman forestry, there, you know, the extant treatises from antiquity. He's also studying John Evelyn and Colbert. And you have <clears throat> what begins to take shape is this kind of statist approach to woodland management, if you want to call it that. Because Evelyn and Colbert and Karlovitz, they're all social elites. They're all particularly interested in state power. They're not particularly interested in generalized social well-being, even though they do occasionally talk about that. What they're interested in is the power of the state. And for Colbert and Evelyn, a lot of that time that has to do with the ability of maritime empires to have a sufficient supply of, let's say, oaks, which were hugely important for building men of war and other kinds of warships. But um, you can criticize them for that for sure, because they're not particularly interested in the plight of, say, the peasantry around access to wood. But there, there's this beginning of a realization, this inkling that resources have been mismanaged and that nature is not a cornucopia, that there are limits to growth, that there are limits to consumption, and that those limits are going to begin to have an impact. In fact, we're already beginning to have an impact on the well-being of elites and the well-being of the state. So that's where I see like the early inklings of thinking about sustainability, is this realization on the part of elites that the conventional path is unsustainable. 
Right, right. It's interesting to me when you talked about how that's linked so much to this well-being aspect so early. I think when, when I think about traditional notions of the environment, especially going back into to, to Europe at that time, it, it was more about degradation. But there actually and, and we, there's so much discourse now about the link to well-being in the environment. But did you you think that that was actually a part of, of the thinking at the time? I think that that becomes a part of the thinking definitely by the 1750s and 1760s. I mean, the, the, you mentioned the first book I wrote. The first book I wrote is on public essay competitions during the Enlightenment. And just very briefly, what those are about, they were hosted by the academies, the academy, and they touched on a whole range of subjects. I couldn't even begin to describe them right now. But a lot of those subjects had to do with social, environmental, and political well-being. They were about legal and political reform. They're about social reform. They're about environmental degradation and its impact on well-being. And I came across some amazing material when I was working on my first book out in the provincial archives. And I used some of that material here because one of the things I found is, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but there was at least 20 competitions, maybe more. I wrote some articles about this on, uh, on forestry and on the lack of access to wood in the 18th century. So there's a whole bunch of competitions in the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s, in which the academies are putting it out there to the public and saying, you know, our, our little region in, in southwestern France, wherever, wherever the competition's being held, has been denuded of wood. What should we do about this? What are the impacts of this? And you have fascinating essays being written by people from, I wouldn't say all social classes, but I mean, you have you have kind of provincial hacks, you have elites, you have people who are, who are actually involved in forestry. I mean, you have to have a certain level of literacy, right? So you can't say it's the poorest of the poor, but you have a pretty good cross-section of society involved in these, in these, in these essays, in these competitions. And essayist after essayist says, we have mismanaged our forests, we have clear-cutted them, the cost of wood has risen, the, uh, the access to firewood is increasingly difficult, costs are going up, this is affecting the poor, people can't cook their meals, they can't heat their homes, it's affecting industry in a whole, whole variety of ways, from the charcoal industry to the silk industry in southwest France that relied upon mulberry trees, etc., there's this realization that resources have been mismanaged. So, and some of them are very much speaking the language of conservation. In fact, they use the word conservation. I mean, I'm always hesitant. I mean, again, I'm trained as a cultural historian to be very careful about assuming that our worldview is anything like the worldview in the past. But it's hard not to connect the dots to realizations that we're having now with what some of the people in the 18th century were beginning to realize. Right, exactly. You know, one, you know, one of the other parts of this book, as you go through this history in Europe, is how that kind of translates into economic thinking, um, yeah. particularly in the UK and some of the UK thinkers. What is? How do you view that transition into kind of industrialization and economic thinking? Did, did that movement kind of carry over from some of the French and the German thinkers? Yeah, it did. I, I think that, <clears throat> um, gosh, how to put that into the form of a narrative. I mean, one of the other realizations I really had in writing this book and has become a major interest of mine since is the question of economic growth. And I talk about this, as, as you saw later on in the book, is that um, we live in a world that is defined by a pursuit of growth. We want to grow. We, we assume that economic growth is inherently a good. Economic growth means more economic activity. That means more economic transactions, that means more capital, that means more well-being. And 
what's fascinating is that that discourse begins really in the 18th century, the idea of growth as an object of the economy, as the purpose of the economy. Prior to Adam Smith and, and the physiocrats in France, no one is particularly interested in growth. Growth is just not even, it's not even a concept. But it becomes a concept with this new economics that develops in this period. But what I find is fascinating is that you go back to the original sources. None of these people are saying that the economy should grow indefinitely or that it's even possible for it to grow infinitely. And then if you look from Adam Smith onward all the way up to the present, running parallel to the whole discourse of economic growth and capitalism is this, these parallel criticisms of it, often from within what we would today call capitalism, not just like the socialists, but I mean, we're talking about people like Mill, John Stuart Mill, who's absolutely a capitalist and uh, part of classical economics. But he's also a, a vociferous critic of the notion of growth, of endless growth. So I thought that was also very instructive and helps to give and helps to historicize the movement I'm a part of. If you want to call it the economics of sustainability, you can call it that. I'm also associated with a movement called degrowth, which is, has actually picked up quite a bit of steam in Europe. And, you know, I've spent a lot of my time reading the works of Schumacher and Herman Daly and a lot of these these thinkers who are still within the realm of capitalism, but they're critical of growth. And so I think that that is absolutely a very big part of the story, because one of the things that I came across in my research is that there is a very close correlation between economic growth and emissions. And in this case, correlation does imply causation. The, there's only been three known periods in which uh, emissions have declined in absolute terms, not in relative terms, but in absolute terms. That was during the uh, the immediate aftermath of the stock market crash in 1921, 1929, so the depression, the fall of the USSR when there was economic slowdown in the Eastern Bloc, and 2007 to 2009 during the economic downturn. And the, the message from that is clear, is that if there's less economic activity, emissions go down. And that is because what happened after the, the, the energy regime based on trees came to an end in the 18th century and an energy regime based on fossil fuels took off with the Industrial Revolution and, and the mining of coal, is that emissions went up and they've been going up and up and up and up ever since. And, you know, the people in the 18th century were not aware of this. I mean, this is, this is a realization that happens later. But um, the relationship between climate change, emissions, economic growth, industrialism, all those things come together. They begin to come together in the sustainability movement. And um, so I think it's absolutely a part of the story. I mean, one of the things that I, if I could go back and, and do another a third edition of this book, I would probably spend more time talking about the, the long awareness of anthropogenic climate change. I mean, I talk a little bit about it in here, is that people in the 18th century were aware of the ability for uh, humans to affect regional climates, but I don't think I do enough to talk about actual, the actual history of anthropogenic climate change realization. I mean, the, 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 the science goes back to the 1890s. You know, yeah, I was wondering if there's any primary sources on that. I mean, I'm aware of some of the literature, which is looking at kind of the acute local to regional air pollution in London in particular. But do you find any sources where there's more global speculation on that front? Yeah, I mean, I would say the earliest is 
Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that happened in the 19th century. Realizations about the nature of carbon dioxide to trap heat, for instance. That That's building from the 1830s. But it really comes together in the work of a, a Swedish geophysicist named Svante Arrhenius, uh, who published a paper in 1895 about the impact of carbonic acid. And he lays out a, a kind of basic framework for what we would call the greenhouse effect. And the notion that mm. carbon dioxide traps heat at infrared wavelengths, and that will over time <clears throat> heat the average surface temperature of the planet. That's 1895. And that only grows from there. But it's still pretty niche and, and kept within a rarefied scientific context. It doesn't really, I mean, I mean even by the 1960s, you know, I mean, the, under the, the Johnson administration in the U.S., they actually, uh, there was a conference on climate change in, in 1965. And by the 1970s, the science is pretty well established. But it's building upon the works of earlier thinkers. But I mean, if I could, if I could just jump back to the 18th century, you know, I talk about the influence of Montesquieu, <clears throat> who was someone who is obsessed with climate. And his obsession with climate is not our obsession with climate. He was interested in the relationship between culture and politics and climate. And a lot of this has to do with deterministic notions about how climate affects political regimes. And it's based upon certain strands of thought from antiquity. But what's interesting is that he triggered this whole, this whole, this whole movement to think about climate. And I found some amazing sources from the 1760s and 70s that show that people are beginning to connect the dots between human behavior and climate. And one of the contexts in which that happens is in the colonial world, and especially on, on islands in the Indian Ocean and in the Caribbean. Because essentially what would happen is that Europeans would come, they would devastate the local population, they would bring slaves to those islands, and they would begin to deforest so that they could grow various commercial crops, including sugar. And what they would figure out pretty quickly is that when you go to some island and cut down all the trees, that it changes the local hydrological cycle, it makes it drier, it makes it hotter, and you're having regional climate impacts. And there's some great quotes from the 1760s and 70s where people are entirely clear about what's going on. They're not, it's not anthropogenic global climate change, but it's regional climate change driven by human action. Mm -hmm. So I can say with pretty high degree of certainty that human beings have realized at least for 250 years that we can change the climate. Yeah, I think then the interesting yeah. question becomes then, you know, why do we only see, as you detail in the book, why do we see this kind of rise in environmental movements and ecological economic thinking and some of these big UN conventions, which you see in the 1960s and 70s? Why only does it come then? I mean, from the historical perspective, if we've known about these things for a few centuries, what, what are the key events in the 1960s and 70s which kind of catalyze this movement? What are the key events in the 60s and 70s? Uh, I think that the development of ecology plays a big role. I mean, ecology is the, is the science of connections, of interconnectedness. And it really takes a while for that science to get going. It's, it's, it's well behind chemistry and biology and physics and astrophysics and others. I think it takes a while for it to become institutionalized in academia. And a lot of times it is the ecologists, like uh, Barry Commoner, for instance, who are, who are raising alarms about environmental degradation, about pollution, about emissions. So some of the works, uh, so I think that's part of it. Partly is the development of ecology. I think partly it is a, a response to industrial accidents that are happening. 
in that period. I think it's also an awareness that <clears throat> there is a close interconnectedness between social and economic well-being and environmental well-being. I think people are starting to connect the dots in, in a more direct way. I mean, the, the, the legacy of Rachel Carson is enormous. And, um, but it's a good question. I mean, it's like, why, why did the environmental movement form in the 1960s? It's another way of putting it. I mean, there were, there were other environmental movements. I mean, you know, Gifford Ponchot and, and John Muir were a part of their own kind of environmental movement in the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, so you can't say that the, the, the environmental movement in the 1960s is the first and only one. But, I mean... It, I think it's I not the first. It's not the first. I mean, by no means, you just gave a couple of historical accounts of some of the big thinkers. But I mean, what, what catalyzed it? You know, I mean, you really see this rise and you give this nice chart in the book. And I mean, I definitely encourage those who are interested. We're skipping a lot of the big parts of the book where you give a lot of detail about the kind of the, the economic thinkers and the philosophical thinkers in the 1800s yeah. um, leading up into this time. And definitely read the book if you're interested in that. But, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, in the 80s, you see kind of this push towards the United Nations. You kind of have a post-war movement as well, which actually forms the United Nations and a bunch of other organizations yeah. which are focused on environmental issues, human well-being issues, peace and security issues. Um, I'm just wondering on your perspective on there, like, is there anything in particular? That, that, drove, the, that drove the environmental movement? Right, exactly. We're kind of linking the environmental movement, like you said, to ecology. I mean, it's kind of taking more of a systems thinking perspective. And you had Rachel Carson. Um, you mentioned her book, and there was a, there was a couple of other books there, which really. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe it's worthwhile to mention systems theory, uh, because you know maybe we talk about the limits of growth, 1972. Uh, I mean, I'm having a hard time answering the question because I think it's it's a hard question to answer. I mean, uh, without it. Maybe, maybe this isn't a direct answer to it, but one of the things I hope emerges from this book is that there have, people, there have been people on the sidelines who have been raising the alarm bells about human activity for a long time, but they weren't often the mainstream. They weren't institutionalized in academia. They didn't have representation in, in government, but they've been there. They've been there a long time. So, I, I mean, to reframe the question, it's... it's Maybe a different way of, of asking the question is, how did this go from the fringe to the center, right? right. Because it's not for me. The environmental movement in the 1960s this didn't come out; just didn't come out of nowhere. It's it, you know it'd been there for a while, but what? Why did it capture the attention of places like Middle America all of a sudden? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I could just give a very clear answer to that, but I will say that going back to this question of growth. Western society had been telling itself for a long time that, for a couple hundred years, that its purpose was to grow, that growth brings well-being. And I think people were able to, or willing to rationalize obvious ways in which that was not the case because they had this, this, this enduring belief and faith in growth. And I think by the 1960s and 1970s, some of the, some of the myths of that story were beginning to become uh, obvious that endless growth was not possible and that it had deep impacts. And so I, I think I just, I do want to mention the work of the Club of Rome and Limits to Growth in 1972. What they were, th these were systems theorists. So systems theory is the ability to bring together diverse sets, diverse data sets and plot them together onto the same graph or 
be able to handle very large data sets and use them to generate scenarios for the future. A lot of times people think that they were making predictions about the future. That's not what they were doing. They were making scenarios. And in their original book, there's 12 or 13 scenarios that say, if this happens, then that will happen. If these variables are true, then that will happen. And so they took a look at, for instance, energy consumption, emissions, other forms of environmental degradation, food, how much food is being consumed, population. They took it all, all that data they brought together into these large systems, and they looked at what the scenarios would look like. And over time, they've, they've been quite accurate about the state of the world. They've been accurate about population growth. Their, their scenario about emissions has been more or less accurate. And they, they publish updates about every 10 years that, that demonstrate how on target they were. And so I think that that book was a bestseller, you know, in 1972. And then you've got the work of Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. These guys had a big audience. They were mentioned by, you know, I mean, Jimmy Carter, I think, had Schumacher to the White House. I mean, these people had a serious audience. And I think some people, especially in the 1970s, when there was that major economic downturn, and you had stagflation, and you had the various oil crises, that was a that was a key moment where people began to realize, oh, okay, maybe growth is not endless. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we're still caught in these cyclical ups and downs of a capitalist economy. Maybe we should rethink what the goal of the economy is. Do we want a bigger economy or do we want a better economy? And I think that thinking really comes onto the scene in a very powerful way, and it remains on the scene. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, the I talk about the concept of the GDP, right, which goes back to 1937. I mean, one of the problems, there's many problems with the GDP as a measure of economic well-being. And one of them is that it doesn't have any way of qualitatively assessing different kinds of growth. You know, so I talk about the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which ended up boosting the U.S. GDP by at least $2 billion because of the economic activity that was generated by it in terms of cleanup crews and lawsuits and consultants and on and on and on. So at the end of the quarter, at the end of the fiscal quarter, oil spills are counted as a positive, right? And, and so Herman Daly calls this uneconomic growth. It's short-term gain that has long-term costs and consequences. And I think that, in a nutshell, is what we're dealing with in, in our society and our economy. And I think that really begins to come onto the radar in the late 60s and early 70s. So I think that, for me, that's part of that, that turning point. Yeah. Michael, you want to jump in? Any questions? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, Jeremy, I was interested in some of the stuff you're actually saying towards the beginning of our talk today, um, particularly about this transition in which you were kind of thinking about your values and thinking about academia and kind of the path you were on, et cetera. Um, you know, I think a lot of us face some of these, you know, in my mind, it feels like kind of a conflict of identity. Like parts of me want this, part, other parts of me want that. How do I manage it all? Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the two questions I had for you based on hearing that is one, um, you know, has that transition that you mentioned uh, affected how you view teaching? Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit about kind of writing a book, et cetera. I mean, part of that was, for, you know, to use it in a classroom, et cetera. I mean, because sometimes when I'm having some of these struggles in my own mind, I think, well, you know, Maybe not the next article is going to really make a difference. It's kind of getting added to the pile sometimes, it feels like that. But I am engaging with these young folks um, about ideas I think are important. And so for me, that's been an important 
piece of the puzzle in navigating some of these issues. Yes. So I'm interested in what you think about that. And then the second is, you know, taking a step back and thinking about academia. Um, you know, I'll put a, this, a version of this question. You can answer, obviously answer however you want, but if, if you could change something about, let's say, the culture or the structure, informally or formally, about academia to try to get us to, you know, nudge us in at least a better direction that can maybe be built upon in the future, like what would you want to see being done in the next five or ten years? Thank you for both those questions. Uh, the first one on teaching, I first of all, I started to teach different classes. Okay. Right? That's not not everyone has the luxury to do that, but I mean. I didn't even finish telling you my whole life trajectory. I mean, I said I quit my tenure position. I quit being a. I was an associate professor. and I just quit. Right. I'm the only person I know. I've heard of a couple of other people, but I'm the only person I know who's ever done this. You know, I mean, I I wasn't driven out of academia. I had like a great relationship with my chair and everything. I just left. I quit. Yes, that is. Let's put it exceedingly rare. Yes. I I was I was just uh, you know like it's exceedingly rare. I gave up <clears throat> all that stability and security. But uh, I then ended up owning a business. I bought a business. I, I bought a food company. <clears throat> and I was involved in, I, I got really interested in the local food movement. And I had a pretty big company that had 12 employees. And what we were doing was essentially buying and selling local food. In, in, uh, and we were like a, a delivery service. <clears throat> and um, we are almost like an online farmer's market, connecting local consumers to local food movement. And it was super rewarding, and I did that for a few years, and then we merged with another company. And then I was raising my children, so I was working part-time, and I've been part-time in academia since then. Mm -hmm. so I'm not tenured right now. And I've also been pursuing other kinds of opportunities. I've worked as a consultant, and I've been getting closer and closer to government here in, in where I live in British Columbia. And so mm -hmm. I'll just I'll leave it at that, but I'm moving in that direction. But the point being is that I also started just teaching different courses. So... I'm teaching a course right now called The Environmental History of the Past 10 Years. And there was a course at my old university called The History of the Past 10 Years, which is essentially looking at current events and historicizing them. And so I took that model into environmental history because I was tired of my students not having, not understanding what they were reading about in the newspaper. In fact, right. not in the newspaper at all because newspapers have been in terminal decline. So. Uh, the environmental history of the past 10 years is my way of saying, here, you guys need to learn about what's going on right now. So I, I'm teaching it in part from the point of view of British Columbia where I live. So we're talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, mm -hmm. talking about this dam, this proposed dam called Site C. We talk about the Paris Climate Accord. We talk about water issues. We talk about soil issues. But the very first assignment is for them to read the newspaper and, in fact, to read multiple newspapers, ideally from different points of view. So just... Being informed about what's going on right now is really important. And so for me to do that as an historian it is <clears throat> somewhat scandalous from the point of view of the, of the classic. The establishment? Or... Yeah, but I'm also not teaching in a history department at the moment. I'm in environmental studies. I moved into environmental studies. Mm -hmm. And those folks don't worry about presentism and, and all the methodological you know, perils that come along with that. They're not as preoccupied with that because they are entirely concerned with the present day. So I don't have to explain to environmental studies undergraduates why it's important to understand what's going on now. But I still bring it, I bring to the table the tools of an historian. And we go back, we historicize these issues more than 100 years. And it is, I think, a phenomenal class. I've taught it twice now. 
And these students come out of my class having a very robust, historically informed understanding of what's going on today. And mm -hmm. how, how did we get to the Paris Climate Accord? Like, what, where did that come from? You got to go backwards into the Kyoto Protocol and then into the UNFCCC and then all the way back. And we go all the way back. And so I still, I still see the world methodologically as an historian, right? You have to understand how we got to the present day to understand right. the dynamics of it, right? Uh -huh. So, um, but not only that, but I also get my students off of campus as much as possible. I mean, you know, one of the things, you, you mentioned my third book, which is about food systems. I've gotten very involved in sustainable food systems, which is, you know, it doesn't really have a big historical, you know, I, I have written a bit about it historically, but this just moves beyond the subject of history, right? I, I'm particularly interested in food systems because I, because I see it as one of the domains within the sustainability movement that's actually doing something. You can actually point to certain successes. The organics movement has had certain successes. The local food movement has had certain successes. So I want to be a part of that. So I teach a course on the, um, the organics industry. And I take my students on five or six different field trips. And we go and visit organic farms. And we have you know, some of the people who live right here in BC who have helped to write the Organic Standard of Canada. They come into my classroom. Oh, that's I, awesome. I get them off of campus as much as possible. I mean, just to give one other example, there is a consulting firm here that is working on municipal natural assets, helping cities to understand the natural assets that they have, for instance, like an urban forest or an aquifer or a wetland or whatever happens to me inside the city. And they figure out ways of valuing those natural assets so that they show up on the ledger as having a value rather than having a value of zero, which is traditionally how they've been valued, so that when development proposals come forward, you can actually say, mm, that wetland has value because it does things like uh, retain water during storms that otherwise would have to be a public cost in terms of creating a, a drainage system right. that has X, you know, millions of dollars associated with it. It's called ecosystem services. Anyway, I have my students working on projects like that. And so some of this is historically related and some of it is not. But I want my students to be involved in very practical community engagement projects. Yeah. So that's, that's my approach to teaching. And then in terms of the culture of academia, what would I want to change? Um, I would want to see a pretty radical change. And uh, I don't know if you guys have read any of the work of Jem Bendel. That, does that name ring a bell? Right, maybe write his name down, Bendel. Um, he's a British. Uh, he's a he's a British. What's he trained as? He's an academic who has has written a number of books on green business. But he, a bit like me, uh, cracked a couple of years ago. His crack is even bigger than my crack, and um, his his thing is that academics should be asking themselves the following question, and that is what. What are you doing and what is your research doing to make a positive contribution towards the ecological crisis that we find ourselves in? Mm. What is the positive contribution that you are making? Not all of us can have a direct, a directly positive, not all of us are climate scientists or studying the human dimensions of climate change or whatever, but still, what, how, how is your research making a difference in terms of social, economic, and environmental well-being, if you want to broaden it a bit? do a kind of triple bottom line thinking. What is your research doing? We're at a point in history, we're at a turning point, where um, certain 
obscure subjects, let's hold off on those. We'll come back to those in like 75 years when we've sorted this out. <laughs> yeah. You know, like push pause on that, on that, on that vanity project you're working on and get involved in what is going on now and make a positive contribution. You're well paid. You have the time and the freedom, intellectual freedom to move your research in whatever direction you want in many cases. You have an, you have influence over the teaching you're doing. Help help us all to pull in the right direction because we need help now. We need help, and that could be working on a whole range of things: species at risk, uh, energy systems, food systems. There's there's no shortage of problems right now. Refugee crisis, whatever it is, figure out a way that you can make a contribution, a concrete contribution towards social, economic, and environmental betterment. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any particular advice? I mean, you kind of referenced that the academics who perhaps in tenured situations, but for younger, early career academics, maybe those going through PhD, postdoc, early career, any particular advice for them? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, this all this stuff is, there is a demand for this in terms of teaching and research too. I mean, I, I can just speak about the universities I'm involved in, but the University of Victoria gets this and they want academics who are working on pretty practical subjects. You know, we're currently doing a hire right now in the School of Public Administration, and the, the top candidates who are interviewing it are people who are working on the economics of sustainability. They're working on they're working on sustainability-related issues that relate to, you know, there's one guy who's like a degrowth theorist. There's another person who works on uh, sustainability and governance. And, uh, you know, I don't know. If you're getting a PhD in mathematics, I don't know. I don't know exactly what my, what my advice is. But still, I mean, figure out... Uh, you know, we need a lot of mathematicians who are working on renewables, for instance. I mean, if you're a historian, well, we need people to help us historicize social justice and environmental justice. There's there's just no shortage of, of subjects out there. There's no shortage. And, um, you know, like I said, I take inspiration from some of the people who I've studied in the in the Enlightenment. The, my, the thinkers that I look up to were completely engaged in the matters of the day. They, they, I mean, you know, someone like Voltaire spent a lot of his time trying to rehabilitate the image of people who have been executed, for instance, unfairly or unjustly, to rehabilitate their their reputation, and also to speak on behalf of various religious and ethnic groups that were being persecuted. I mean, you need, we need to act with more of a moral and ethical imperative as academics, because, and, and then, you know, historians sit around and bitch about the fact that history departments are in decline. I mean, we, we have declining enrollment across the board. There's no university that I know of anywhere in the world that's building a new building to history departments right now. They're building new buildings for the sciences, et cetera. Well, part of the reason that we've atrophied as, as a discipline is because we've painted ourselves into a corner by working on mostly topics that people find obscure and irrelevant to their lives rather than making more of an effort to write works that are that are critical, well-informed, and useful and relevant to what is actually going on right now. It's, it's not that hard to do. Now, I'm not saying you have to give up being an historian. I'm saying marshal those resources, marshal those talents and that training, and, and produce works that, that, will, that are better society. Yeah, well said. Carson did. That's what Barry Commodore did. You know, that's what Jared Diamond's doing. Right. Yeah, that, that 
that's definitely a good perspective. One that makes me think, you, what, what are some of the things which you think about personally that you're doing or you're going to do or you want to do in the next five years or so? Well, I've gotten really involved in politics and government, so I, I see my career heading in that direction. Um, you know, I won't get into it in this podcast, but I'm, I'm heavily involved in a political party here in BC, and um, I've been applying for jobs in the Climate Action Secretariat in in British Columbia. So I see myself working my way in work, working way, my way towards government. But if I let's say I were still a tenured academic, I would um, I would be doing I would want to create a I, I would be working on food systems because that's that's one area of expertise I have and that's just kind of a bee in my bonnet. Uh, but you know, if it wasn't now, it would probably be energy systems as well. I'm particularly interested in renewables and decentralizing our, the grid. So energy and food are two, two areas of interest that I have. I'd like to create, for instance, a new kind of holistic certification system that goes beyond organic certification. If I could just mention this very briefly, mm-hmm. I'd like to see a holistic system that assesses food and farming based upon five different criteria, which would be social justice, soil conservation, soil building, um, the use of chemicals or absence of the use of chemicals, um, selling food locally, and then uh, what's and then energy, energy inputs on the farm. Currently, there's no holistic system that looks at those five elements, but I would like to see more transparency and more more um, informing informing uh, consumers about what they're consuming so that it empowers them to consume foods that support local economies and reduce emissions. That's what I would be working on. Okay. Well, I mean, so following up on, on your discussion about teaching, which I really found interesting, I mean, I agree that we need to kind of get students out into the world. You know, when I've been with students in, in the field, you know, my favorite thing to hear from them is, oh my gosh, that, that idea you mentioned about property rights in class, that actually matters. You know? mm-hmm. You're like, well, I kind of, I, I understand why you wouldn't think so. Because um, it's just so different when these, these words kind of float in the air in a classroom and then stay there. I mean, so I'm actually in an environmental studies department here, and I think one of the challenges um, that we're perceived to have, and also by me, is that we, we talk a lot about challenges and failures um, and I think some of our students can end up feeling rather frustrated kind of this analysis paralysis or feeling like you know that if we can't get to the perfect world and why bother trying to move forward I don't think that's explicit I bet I feel like that can be a kind of mental block um, for students and for older folks have you you know when you're engaging with younger folks or with whomever are you do you perceive the same kind of challenge of, of, you know, we're talking all about these grand challenges, but we also have to kind of figure out a way, you know, to do something today and tomorrow, knowing that it's not going to solve everything by then? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, I think that the students who go into environmental studies tend to be pretty values-driven, though, and, and I think somewhat thick-skinned. I mean, mm. I mean, uh, one of the things that's happened for me is that I, I've totally changed the way I teach, to be honest. I totally changed the way I teach. I mean, I used to come at it from the point of view of the detached academic, and I now teach in a much more folksy, mm. 
and personalized way because I find that especially ES students respond well to that. They, they're, not, they're not interested in the detached academic. And so yeah. some days if I'm feeling depressed or overwhelmed by the world, I'll just tell them that. Right. You know? I mean, we'll sometimes talk about our feelings, just talk about how you're feeling, you know, feelings check. You know, what's your, yeah. level, what's your level of uh, cynicism and feeling overwhelmed today? We'll just, we'll just start class by that, depending on what's in the news. And we just kind of work through it. I mean, my classes have become like partly like a support group. Right? Yeah. And uh, I feel like that's just the reality of what we're living in today. I mean, I also teach in a program called The Human Dimensions of Climate Change. And the, uh, for the final projects in that course, um, I have them do good news projects. So mm -hmm. yeah. there's, there's enough bad news on, on climate change that the final, I force them to go out and find either something that's going well now or at least something that in theory could be good news <clears throat> so that they end on a high note. And I think the feedback I've gotten from that has been pretty positive. It, they like that, you know, rather than talking about fast fashion and the, the toxins in the water that's wasted in, in producing the clothes we wear, they go out and look at sustainable clothing companies or they looked at, you know, I had a, just had a student do a great project on electrified ferry transport, things like that. So uh, I, I think that, I think that we have to avoid, I do think we have to avoid the doom and the gloom but I am, I am, you know, I keep in my head having these debates with Jem Bendel, the guy I just mentioned. And again, I think you should, you should look him up because he's he's a part of a movement called uh, deep adaptation. And part of his, and he's another disaffected academic. And part of his ethos is that we need to stop having hope. That hope, in a sense, can be kind of an opiate. That if you allow yourself to stop i mean or it depends on what you're hopeful for or hopeful about if you but you don't want to get you don't want hope to become a kind of opiate that just keeps you wedded to some dying reality i mean hope if you give up if you give up on hope i think you move on to grieving and then hopefully you move on to something else that can be constructive so i i am i keep i keep wrestling in my head of, with him about that and about how much and what what my what what I want my attitude towards hope to be. Mm. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, um, for listeners who are interested in finding more about your work or et cetera, what you're doing, do you want to guide them to a particular place online or elsewhere? Sure. Uh, you can go to my website, jeremycaradona.com. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you can email me at at uh, c a r a d o n n at u v i c dot c a caradon at uvic dot c a and uh, you know, people can reach out to me anytime. Sounds good. Well, we'll let you get back to the rest of your morning, uh, but really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Yeah, thanks again. Yeah, I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you'll find a content and guest request form. We want to provide content on the podcast that all of you want to hear. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. Again, thank you for supporting the podcast. <laughs>